why did Dementia Joe's handlers decide to do his I Hate You America speech now? What news about the vaccines just came out that they are trying to bury by diverting your attention to his speech? Find out on this edition of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 230 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Friday, September 2nd, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman and... I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that will live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, just ahead of the new bombshell news about the vaccine and about who went behind Donald Trump's back and the whole COVID situation when he was still in office. Let me deal briefly with the speech. In our last episode, I took a whole lot of time, over two hours, totally eviscerating everything Joe Biden said in a speech at a school gym in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, on Tuesday. He's just a bald-faced liar. So he made it easy, and frankly, I enjoyed it. Anyway, he didn't really say anything new or different in his nationally broadcast I Hate You, You Meanies speech from Philadelphia Thursday evening, and there are a whole lot of excellent commentators who are pushing back against that speech, and they're pushing back hard, and they're doing it eloquently. So, since he didn't say anything Thursday that he didn't already say in Tuesday's speech, which I already ripped to shreds, I'll just touch on his, his new speech briefly before moving on. So, here's a short clip from the new speech. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud wait wait this isn't it organization in the history of american politics um no that that was before the 2020 election they stole that 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 wasn't that wasn't from the new speech uh i just wanted to play a a, a quick 
clip from the the speech in Philly, guys, if we could. That's why I made it a priority in my entire career to work closely with you. From the time I got to the Senate 180 years ago, <laughs> you know, as far as my tenure as vice president. Okay, very funny, guys. You got him saying he was in the Senate for 180 years. I get it. He's got dementia. But, you know, if I could just have a clip from his speech in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, um, Thursday night, I, I I would appreciate it. And by the way, you know, I sit on the stand. No, and no. And get hot. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs. No. That turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. Oh, boy. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. Oh, man. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. Oh, boy. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. Here we go. I learned about roaches. Always wondered about that. Was that a racist comment? Well, no. I mean, obviously, he's a Democrat. So it doesn't matter what he says. They'll never call him on it. <clears throat> um, guys, this is really getting embarrassing. Could you please just give me an audio clip? From Joe Biden's I hate you, I hate America, that the speech Thursday night. You know, with the eerie dark red fascist looking lighting behind him. That that that's what I'm looking for. Please, just just a clip from the speech. All right, finally, thank you. No, no booing, no booing. Look, every would-be dictator starts off demonizing his political opponents as enemies of the state, as scapegoats. Biden is saying the same thing about people who want to make America great again, people he calls MAGA Republicans that Adolf Hitler said about the Jews. As the great Jack Posobiec, senior editor of Human Events, just said over on Twitter, this is not new. Authoritarians in decline throughout history always divide the people and blame all their failings on an enemy subgroup within the population. Then mobilize state power against that subgroup. Biden started with the people who were unvaccinated, and now we're here. The folks of the Chicago Thinker reminded us what Benito Mussolini, Italian dictator, the founder of fascism, said. He said, the fascist conception of life accepts the individual only insofar as the individual's interests coincide with those of the state. Joe Biden echoed this same thought today when he demonized half the country as extremist for opposing his power grabs. Even Ed O'Keefe, Ed O'Keefe, CBS White House correspondent said, like or loathe what he said tonight, it should be noted the president spoke tonight on the grounds of a national park 
flanked by United States Marines and took direct, specific aim at his predecessor and members of the Republican Party. Another thing we don't see every day. Okay, now, that's about the closest that a liberal mainstream journalist for a liberal mainstream network like CBS News can come to say, to saying, hey, what's going on here? You know, I mean, God bless him. He got as close as he possibly could to saying, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. So I got to give him credit for that. Ed O'Keefe, CBS senior White House correspondent. Okay, now look. I realize there's something called Godwin's Law. I realize that it stipulates that once you compare your opponent to Hitler, you betray the fact that you have no argument, that all you can do is resort to name-calling, and so you lose the argument whether you realize it or not. But what are you going to do with Godwin's Law when your opponent, in this case Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., actually wants to be compared to Hitler. No, 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 no. I I know he has no idea. He has no idea. He's got tapioca brains. But his handlers do. They did it on purpose. Look, there was a still shot from Thursday night's speech in Philadelphia of Biden holding up both of his clenched fists the same exact way Adolf Hitler did. Maybe we should give Biden the nickname Adolf. Now, Doc, 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 you may not like the guy, but you have to respect the office. Well, I do respect the office. No matter how awful they were, I call Bill Clinton and Barack Obama both president. Well, see, Biden stole the office. I respect the office by disrespecting him. I don't know, maybe calling him Adolf is too obvious. How about calling him Schicklgruber? Isn't that what Daffy Duck called Hitler during World War II and those propaganda cartoons that were so great? I mean, we don't want to be too obvious. By the way, Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon had a response to the speech. He said, a speech, a photograph, a moment that will live in infamy. Our duty is now clear. This usurper must be impeached and removed from office immediately upon MAGA coming to power in January 2023. On this, we have a moral obligation to every patriot grave from the Revolutionary War right down to the 13 honored dead at the Abbey Gates at the airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. God bless Steve Bannon. I mean, I don't know how you remove him from office because, again, so many people don't understand this. I know Bannon understands it, but so many people don't understand this. Impeachment means you lose the vote in the House. And the House impeachment managers go over to the Senate and they conduct a trial. And to convict him, two-thirds of the United States senators, that's 67 senators, have to vote to convict which is why 
We've impeached three presidents in this country, and of course, none of them have been convicted. So none of them were removed from office because they were impeached. And you know, I mean, the Trump impeachment was less than two years ago, and still people don't get this. People don't understand this. I don't know why we have to explain it over and over again. Well, Trump wasn't impeached. He wasn't removed from office. Yes, he was impeached. No, he wasn't removed from office. Huh? I mean, I'm trying to explain to you how it works. Andrew Johnson, the first one, our 17th president, the one right after Lincoln got shot, he was impeached, and back then we didn't have nearly as many states, so two-thirds of the United States senators wouldn't be anywhere near 67. And he almost was convicted, one vote shy of two-thirds. But these days... just not going to happen so i mean god bless steve bannon if he can figure out a way without having 67 u.s senators to get some democrats to vote to convict in the senate god bless him that's great that's great by the way sergio gore founder of winning team publishing the nation's premier conservative publishing house. Sergio over there on Twitter says, okay, so Biden tonight is like, let's not discuss those killed in Afghanistan during the withdrawal or war in Europe or inflation or high gas prices. Let's not talk about the sinking stock market. Let's discuss MAGA and President Donald Trump two years after Biden has utterly failed our nation. Yeah, he has, hasn't he? Before we get to the, 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 the bombshell of the vaccine, let, let me give you this. The great Kyle Lamb, data and research communications team, Governor Ron DeSantis' office, Tallahassee, Florida. He's got a little thread here. He says, you might be a fascist if you don't want children sexualized. You might be a fascist if you want parents to have a say in education. You might be a fascist if you believe in election security. You might be a fascist if you're against forced masking, forced vaccination, and forced indoctrination. You might be a fascist if you want free speech. Okay, now let's roll the tape to see real fascism, shall we? Following are examples of measures employed by the same people that wish to label patriotic Americans as extremists because they dare to dissent from progressive narratives. These are the people that redefine fascism, recessions, prior immunity, etc. Okay, let, let's begin. The Biden administration empowered OSHA to issue a rule through executive fiat forcing all employees of businesses over 100 people to consent to forced testing and forced vaccinations. The Supreme Court ruled they had no such authority. The Biden administration used junk science by the CDC to claim they had the authority to suspend all evictions in the United States. Joe Biden even admitted 
constitutional scholars doubted their authority. They did it anyway. Supreme Court ruled that, indeed, they had no such authority. Public records requests have confirmed that several agencies of the United States government have collaborated with and applied pressure to social media platforms to censor United States citizens. This is a violation of free speech, and it is unconstitutional. That's right. He links to this. According to newly released emails obtained by state attorneys general, Facebook and the Biden administration arranged weekly and monthly calls to discuss what to censor on the platform. Yeah, the White House asked them to censor a um, Dr. Fauci parody page on Facebook. Biden's latest debt forgiveness plan is by executive fiat through authority he doesn't have. Their own legal team is citing an irrelevant 2003 statute that applies to former military members. Even Slate.com acknowledges this will be shot down by the courts. White House staff and the U.S. Department of Education were found to be complicit in an NSBA letter that referred to concerned parents as domestic terrorists. DOJ then mobilized and weaponized the FBI to target these parents in cases of harassment of school board members. NSBA, of course, National School Board Association, which half of the state school board associations have disassociated themselves with. Biden's USDA threatened to withhold funding from the school lunch program to schools who did not enforce such policies as boys competing in girls' sports and boys using girls' bathrooms and locker rooms. This past week, now I'm not going to call him the President of the United States. We'll call him Resident. This past week, Resident Biden threatened the use of F-15s against American citizens in a theoretical Conflict. Look, if you haven't listened to my last show, I ripped them a new one, if I may use that term in present company, about the threat to use F-15s. Because the big deal is not him mentioning F-15s. The big deal is the implication of why he mentioned the F-15s. And I got all over it in episode 229. So you want to go back and get that. Next, from Kyle Lamb, Biden and the Democrats have weaponized the IRS with 87,000 new agents to target American middle and lower income citizens. These people are already five, five times more likely to be audited than wealthy Americans. And you know what? He, he links... It's about a three-and-a-half-minute clip from the Fox Business Network in which they interviewed Representative Claudia Tenney, a Republican from New York. And so I want to share that with you, and we're going to get to the bombshell also about the vax 
and the bombshell about Deborah Burks. That is all coming up. But I just want to mention how thankful we are that we have advertisers who make it possible. They're not just our advertisers. They're our friends. We love them. They love us. We trust them. They trust us. They make it possible for us to do what we do five times a week. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there. And there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. And we say thank you so much to our friend Jonathan Presswood over at Edward Jones. 
Financial Advisors. Also, thank you so much to our friend Mitch Ward over at RedRiverYourWay.com. We appreciate you guys for making it possible for us to do what we do here. All right. We're in the middle of talking about real fascism. Um, Kyle Lamb on Twitter with one example after another of real fascism. And he links to Representative Claudia Tenney. Three-and-a-half-minute clip of her interview over on Fox Business Network. On her tweet, she says, Biden's Inflation and Recession Act will pave the way for Democrats to hire 87,000 new IRS agents and target more than 700,000 Americans making less than 75000 a year with audits. Even the nonpartisan CBO agrees. Now, remember, Biden promised nobody under 400000 He lies like a rug. Here's Representative Claudia Tenney over Fox Business Network. What's, what is going on here? This is incredible. This is going to be a huge audit. It's 87000 New, new agents who are, by the way, going to be armed when we should be having taxpayer advocates to help people with what we're doing now. As members of Congress, we're still helping people through the IRS uh, pandemic issues. They have a backlog. We're not getting refunds. We're not getting taxes completed. Now you're going to see the easiest people to go after are the ones that can least defend themselves. They can't afford lawyers and accountants, and that's who they're going to be going after. And remember, many of these are small businesses. And they create most of our jobs. So it's going to have an impact on the economy as well. Yeah, to your point, it's a good one because, you know, the Democrats keep saying, oh, we're going to have the IRS go after major corporations. Well, guess what? Practically every major corporation is already audited by the IRS every year. So that's misleading. So now they're going to look under every American's couch cushion to find extra change to pay for their, you know, their IRS audits. Uh, Excuse me, their, their climate and health spending. Yeah, you're not going to see much of that right now. Nobody has any money, right? We're seeing a huge downturn in uh, because of inflation, uh, continued spending, and also people, uh, the price of gas, even though they keep saying it's lower, it's still at an all-time high, and it was much lower. I, I Honestly, I run into people every day. I'm campaigning all over, and I see I ran into some young kids, some FFA kids uh, named Devin and Trent, who said to me, we want mean tweets and eighty-nine gas. <laughs> and these are kids that are farm kids. I mean, this is what's, this is the reality, though. I, I just thought it was really well put by them. This is reality. The people can, need to get to work in upstate New York and rural areas. Uh, we don't have public transportation. So you're going to see these people besieged by IRS agents. And yeah, but Kathy, H- but Kathy really Hochul, the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, says, you know, they're not real Americans. They, they should move to Florida, you know, the Trump voters. They've, they already have. We have the highest stop migration of people, and the number one destination for New Yorkers is Florida, where they have no income tax, and they didn't have the lockdowns and the authoritarian regime that Kathy Hochul is putting in. And we have already the Green New Deal of New York, which, by the way, California was had passed yesterday. We already have it in effect, and we're talking about going to electrification, yeah. banning gas cars. It's bad. The other thing, too, is you know David Eisner, he's a former Treasury IRS oversight official, He's saying $80 billion is twice what even bipartisan, uh, the bipartisan framework last year agreed on. It was $40 billion. That's Democrats agreeing on that. And, then, you know, the other thing, too, is Chuck Schumer, he claims, a lo- oh, you know, that the, the Trump administration audited the lower brackets. That's misleading. 
The, the inspector general of the IRS says a quarter of the earned income tax credit is loaded with fraud. It's fraudulent. And the IRS is mandated to go after that. So Chuck Schumer keeps top spinning and misleading the American people. Look, what we did with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is make it simpler. So less and less people actually really needed to go through H&R Block and other agencies and groups to help them prepare their taxes. It was very simplified. So you're going to have less requirement for audits because we actually made the tax code simpler. It's more complicated for those people in the higher echelons, but it was better for small businesses. So, you know, you're right, though. Those types of audits already occur. uh, And that's where you see some of the gaming going on in the system. But for the large part, it's going to be the, the big taxpayers who are not going to be feeling the Got heat. It. Okay. Congresswoman Tenney of New York, thanks for joining us. Good to see you. Thanks so much. Good Coming up, Dolly and Jenny. Okay. So the point is, you got Biden and his crew calling us all fascists. You see, fascism actually has a definition. It doesn't just mean... Um, I don't like you. You know? Fascism is where you have the appearance, you have the veneer of private ownership of business, but the state has business so regulated, it's so controlling that you may as well, you know, may as well be communism. You may as well not have private ownership because you can't do anything. Next on Kyle Lamb's list, after the White House initially criticized Florida for its use of monoclonal antibodies as a treatment against COVID-19, once everyone realized they were effective, they then cut Florida's supply, putting more people at immediate risk so they could ration them for later. Next, the U.S. Department of Education rewarded rogue school boards that flaunted state law by reimbursing their districts who had funding withheld for their noncompliance. The feds encouraged districts to violate state law. Next, you got Karine Jean-Pierre, White House Press Secretary. Check it out. And again, we see majority of Americans who disagree. And so when you are not with where majority of Americans are, then, you know, that is extreme. That is an extreme way of thinking. Really? So Kyle Lamb says, according to this White House, You are an extremist if you're in the minority, less than 50%. Our founders literally built this constitutional republic to protect the minority from the majority, which is mob rule. Our founders loathed the concept of democracy because it is mob rule. They established a constitutional representative republic, not not a democracy. But this administration thinks they need to save democracy by mob rule. Kyle Lamb continues with another clip from White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. 
The president thinks that there is an extremist threat to our democracy. Uh, the president has been clear, as he can be, on that particular uh, piece when we talk about a democracy, when we talk about our freedoms. Uh, the way that he sees is the MAGA Republicans are the most energized part of the Republican Party. Uh, the, that extreme, this is an extreme threat to our democracy, to our freedom, uh, to our rights. The president thinks that... No, no, I'm not going to play it twice. So Kyle Lamb says, if you disagree, you're an extremist, fascist, authoritarian, terrorist, racist, misogynist, bigot, conspiracy theorist, or some other ad hominem label they use to deflect from policy. He says, so really, who is the biggest problem here? More executive overreach bonus currently, in addition to the Supreme Court rulings, Biden agency orders from the CDC were stopped by federal courts preventing the no-sale cruise order and the mask transportation mandate. But again, this regime says that you, you are the problem. Now, my buddy Oilfield Rando, Oilfield Rando, just a random guy on the oil field. He was responding to Nancy Pelosi's tweet in which she said, Tonight, President Biden, in his inspiring and optimistic remarks, made crystal clear that our rights, our freedom, and our democracy are on the line. Oilfield Rando says, What do you think? People who sincerely believe this would be willing to do to their opponents. He says, Pelosi doesn't believe it. She knows exactly what she's doing. But the idiots who support her? Man. What would they do? Now, Brandon Straker, a campaign founder of the Walk Away campaign, says this is like watching Hitler speak. The great Nick Searcy said, except Hitler wasn't senile. And his evil was actually coming from his own brain. Joe Biden has no brain left. Nothing he says is something he thought. So somebody is loading his lips there. Now, Jennifer Rubin, who used to be the token conservative of the Washington Post, but for years now has been just as liberal as the rest of them, tweeted out, At 7.47 p.m. Eastern Time, Thursday evening, she put on Twitter, Biden's Philadelphia speech met the moment. Mass arrests should come next. And then she deleted the tweet almost immediately. So the great Rod Dreher, senior editor of the American Conservative, He said about Jennifer Rubin, saying the quiet part out loud and then quickly deleting. But I like what attorney Robert Barnes said, and he's representing some of the uh, January 6th folks. He said, Biden's speech summarized, build back brown shirts. And then, for that matter, 
Thank you to Maze Moore out there on Twitter who has video of all the violence on Inauguration Day 2017. Footage from Washington, D.C. on the day of Trump's inauguration. It happened all over the country for four years. Remember this when Joe Biden calls MAGA supporters terrorists. And you know... Did the Justice Department under Jeff Sessions and then under William Barr do much about any of that? Hard to recall, isn't it? Hard to recall. U.S. Representative Lauren Boebert, Colorado, says, Hey, Joe, if you really do stand against political violence, why did your vice president bail out the rioters of 2020? Huh? Why, indeed. But I like what William Wolfe said. William Wolfe was a senior official at the State Department and the Department of Defense under President Trump. I interviewed him a few weeks ago. He's out there on Twitter saying, sometimes simply mocking the false gods and powers that be is the best response, even for Christians. Well, that's... That's what I've been trying to do. That's what I've been trying to do. So, there's a lot more to come. We got a bombshell about the vaccines and why they're so dangerous, and you probably haven't heard this anywhere else. Fox News isn't going to tell you, that's for sure. Highly unlikely Newsmax is going to tell you. They fired Steve Cortez for not getting the vax, right? They fired their wonderful White House correspondent, Emerald Robinson, for telling the truth about the vax, right? Just wait. Just wait. It's coming up next. Again, thank you so much to our wonderful advertisers for making it possible for us to do the Doc Washroom Show five times a week. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center 501-279-2009 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. 
If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. All right, thanks so much again. Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, they're not only my advertisers here, Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. They're not only our friends, but they have helped me and my wife and so many people that we know over the years. Just uh, the best kept secret in American healthcare. TurnMyPowerOn.com. I highly, highly recommend it. All right, now, enough of the foolishness about the speech. The bombshell on the vaccines, the clot shots, if you will, is over at Steve Kirsch's Substack. So let's get to that. It's stevekirsch.substack.com. Kirsch is spelled K-I-R-S. C-H, stevekirsch.substack.com. I have shared articles with you from his Substack before. This one is entitled, Documents Leaked from the EMA Confirm Why We Aren't Allowed to Analyze the Vaccine Vials. Okay, EMA stands for European Medicines Agency. Subtitle. It's like rolling the dice for what you get in your vial. Both the FDA and EMA knew this, but kept this out of the public view because if it were known, nobody would take the vaccines. No, no, no. He's got the receipts, y'all. He's got the receipts. So grab hold of something. Steve Kirsch begins his article by saying, one of my readers has been trying to get my attention for eight months on the EMA data, the EMA data leak that happened nearly two years ago. He recently posted a Substack article, and Steve Kirsch links to it, documenting his attempts to get visibility on what the document leak from the European Medicines Agency revealed. The gem in the article is this video, which was posted 18 months ago that few people have seen. The video is just 14 minutes long. It's very well done. He links to it right here from his article. The findings are all consistent with what I and others have long suspected. The vaccine vials are all different. Let that sink in. Okay. Do I need to repeat it for the folks in the back, for the West Coast audience? The findings are all consistent with what I and others have long suspected the vials of the vaccines are all different. The key finding is the reason they won't let anyone analyze the vials. mRNA is not intact. Okay? 
The British Medical Journal wrote about this March 10th, 2021. Number one. On November 23rd, 2020, EMA knew about the quality control issues with severely compromised mRNA integrity, ranging from 78% to 55%. Now, Steve Kirsch says it's supposed to be 100% if you want an effective vaccine. Number two, just two days later, a source in the U.S. said the lots were now back at around 70 to 75%, which leaves us cautiously optimistic that additional data could address the issue. Number three, the complete intact mRNA molecule is essential to its potency as a vaccine. According to Professor of Biopharmaceutics, Dan J.A. Cromelin and colleagues in the review article they wrote in the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences last year. Number four, the British Medical Journal asked Pfizer, Moderna, and CureVac, as well as several regulators, what percentage mRNA integrity they consider acceptable for vaccines against COVID-19. None of them offered any specifics. Steve Kirsch sarcastically says, wow, that's really comforting. Number five, the EMA, European Medical Agency, told the British Medical Journal that the levels of truncated mRNA and the amounts of a potential protein produced by the truncated mRNA would be too low to constitute a safety risk. Steve Kirsch comments, how does the EMA know that exactly? Number six, Health Canada told the British Medical Journal that Pfizer had conducted investigations into the root cause of reduced integrity in the commercial vaccine batches and changes were made in their processes to ensure that the integrity was improved and brought in line with what was seen for clinical trial batches. Health Canada said the three agencies subsequently determined that there was no concern with the RNA integrity or any other product specifications. Steve Kirsch comments, Whew, now I'm relieved. No data on the new levels produced? Hey, if you can't trust Pfizer, who can you trust? He's being sarcastic, yes. Pfizer paid the biggest criminal fine in medical history, 14 years, $2.3 billion dollars for defrauding doctors. But I'm you know, I'm sure they're pure as the driven snow now. Steve Kirsch's Substack article continues. In general, 
The British Medical Journal was not happy about anything they heard from the regulators. They were basically stonewalled in their requests. The fact that it's illegal for anyone to analyze the vials, because they're government property after all, doesn't help inspire confidence at all. Even if you're getting 100% intact mRNA, which would be really rare, you're still not getting anything that resembles the virus. So the efficacy as far as protecting you will be next to nothing. However, what it will do very effectively, if you got reasonably intact mRNA, is to cause you significant harm. You're playing a game of chance with your immune system and what is in the bottle. Now, the 14-minute video highlights some of the things we learned from the EMA, European Medical Agency, data breach. Number one, the EMA claims the documents were manipulated and make them look bad, but they won't say how they were manipulated. So I'm not buying the EMA story at all. Number two, the members of the European Parliament were not allowed to read the contracts with the vaccine makers, only heavily redacted versions. Again, if you can't trust Pfizer and the EMA, who can you trust? Right, kids? Number three, be calm here. Number three, the mRNA is unstable even at the required temperatures because light, movement, like shipping it to a destination, and any temperature variation disrupts the mRNA. So, number four, unstable mRNA means the spike protein, which was artificially propped up, could collapse making the whole process useless to support immunity, but still dangerous in terms of damage to cells. So you get all the risk and none of the benefit. Number five, the mRNA integrity was better in the clinical trial than in the commercial batches. But don't assume that the vaccine worked in the trials since the trials were heavily gamed to produce favorable outcomes, mostly by excluding people with weak immune systems from the vaccine group. This is why there were five times the number of exclusions in the vaccine group. If you're looking at a vaccine which likely does absolutely nothing except make people believe they're protected, this mind control works quite well. People bought the story for over a year before they realized they were getting infected at the same rate as people who didn't get the vaccine. Number six, the mRNA integrity varied between countries. Number seven, Pfizer never told anyone that the commercial vaccines had lower mRNA integrity than the vaccines used in the trials. This is unethical, bordering on fraud. Number eight. The EMA, 
European Medical Agency, tried to cover it up. Instead of protecting the public and making Pfizer look bad, the EMA basically covered up the problem. Number nine, Pfizer never told the public or governments about the risks associated with mRNA integrity. If it wasn't for the leak, we never would have known. But it's all okay because the drug companies are exempt from any liability. The patient takes all the risk here, not the drug companies. Number 10, EMA was concerned about visible particles in the vials. Now, the British Medical Journal never investigated that. Is it still a problem? I don't think anyone cares to know the answer to that. Number 11, the deaths in the trials, that's right, people dying in the trials are all dismissed as unrelated to the vaccine without doing a proper analysis. Number 12, there should be an investigation into these issues, but the governments are not going to expose their own fraud since it would be too embarrassing so nothing will happen. Summary. This video summarizing the leaked EMA documents constitutes yet more evidence that the vaccines confer no benefits, only risk. However, like everything else, it will be ignored by the authorities. However, this is important information for the public to know about how they are being manipulated into taking a useless vaccine. Nobody is calling for any quality control here. Have you ever seen a study where the authors collect vials randomly and sequence them? It's not going to happen. Not in my lifetime. That is the wonderful, important, compelling Steve Kirsch at stevekirschsubstack.com, K-I-R-S-C-H, article entitled, Documents Leaked from the EMA confirm why we aren't allowed to analyze the vaccine vials. Again, EMA stands for European Medicines Agency. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Now, a lot of people, in retrospect, looking back, looking backwards through the looking glass, Back from 2022 to 2021 to 2020. 15 days to slow the spread. Don't wear a mask. Do wear a mask. Operation Warp Speed. Fauci, Burks, Redfield. A lot of people are trying to figure out what happened. Well, I got it for you. If you want it. I mean, I got it for you if you want it. I'm thinking about uh, that great line from that movie with Nicholson and Tom Cruise. You want the truth? Yeah, that's what Nicholson said. You want the truth? I think I deserve the truth. Do you want the truth? Yes, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I don't think that the majority of my listeners are unable to handle the truth. 
the truth can sometimes infuriate us. But I don't think people listen to the Doc Washburn show because they want me to sugarcoat things. So I'm not going to. I haven't been staying up all night the last few nights and doing the podcast as dawn breaks because I want to withhold information from you. You know? I'm going to have to learn to get on a a better schedule, but it is what it is. Brownstone Institute has a new article. Now, Brownstone Institute is a nonprofit 501c3 organization founded May of last year. Its vision is of a society that places the highest value on the voluntary interaction of individuals and groups while minimizing the use of violence and force, including that which is exercised by public or private authorities. This vision is that of the Enlightenment, which elevated learning, science, progress, and universal rights to the forefront of public life. It is constantly threatened by ideologies and systems that would take the world backwards to before the triumph of the ideal of freedom. The motive force of Brownstone Institute was the global crisis created by policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. That trauma revealed a fundamental misunderstanding alive in all countries around the world today, a willingness on the part of the public and officials to relinquish freedom and fundamental human rights in the name of managing a public health crisis, which was not managed well in most countries. The consequences were devastating and will live in infamy. Got it? So... Their website is called brownstone.org, the Brownstone Institute. They have a new article. A woman named Debbie Lerman wrote it. And it's scary. Debbie Lerman has a degree in English from Harvard. We're not going to hold that against her. She's a retired science writer, practicing artist in Philadelphia. The article is entitled, It Was Burke's All Burks. She says, in two previous articles, I looked into the shady circumstances surrounding Deborah Burks's appointment to the White House Coronavirus Response Task Force and the laughable lack of actual science behind the claims she used to justify her testing, masking, distancing, and lockdown policies. Considering all that, the questions arise. Who was actually in charge of Deborah Burks, and who was she working with? But first, who cares? Well, here's why I think it's important. If we can show that Deborah Burks and the others who imposed totalitarian anti-science testing, masking, social distancing, and lockdown policies knew from the get-go that these policies would not work against an airborne respiratory virus, and nevertheless, they imposed them for reasons other than public health, then there is no longer acceptable justification for any of those measures. Furthermore, whatever mountains 
of post facto bad science were concocted to rationalize these measures are also completely bunk. Instead of having to go through each ridiculous pseudo-study to demonstrate its scientific worthlessness, we can throw the whole steaming pile in the garbage heap of history where it belongs and move on with our lives. In my admittedly somewhat naive optimism, I also hope that by exposing the non-scientific, anti-public health origins of the COVID catastrophe, we may lower the chances of it happening again. And now back to Deborah Burks. First of all, again, I, I hope you're sitting down. I've got some shocks here. First of all, Deborah Burks did not work for or with Donald Trump. Okay? That's weird. That's a shock. But she backs it up. She says, we know Burks was definitely not working with President Trump, although she was on a task force ostensibly representing the White House. Trump did not appoint her nor did the leaders of the task force, as Scott Atlas recounts in his revelatory book on White House pandemic lunacy entitled A Plague Upon Our House. We find out on page 82 of Scott Atlas's book when he asked task force members how Deborah Burks was appointed, he was surprised to find out that no one seemed to know. Oh, my goodness. Yet somehow Deborah Burks, a former military AIDS researcher and government AIDS ambassador with no training, no experience, no publications in epidemiology or public health policy, found herself leading a White House task force on which she had the power to literally subvert the policy prescriptions of the President of the United States himself. As she describes in her own book, The Silent Invasion, Deborah Burks was shocked when at the halfway point of our 15 days to slow the spread campaign, President Trump stated that he hoped to lift all restrictions by Easter Sunday. She was even more dismayed when Quote, mere days after the president had announced the 30-day extension of the Slow the Spread campaign to the American public, unquote, he became enraged and told her, we will never shut down the country again, never. That's from page 152 of her book. Clearly, Trump was not on board with the lockdowns, and every time he was forced to go along with him, he became enraged and lashed out at Deborah Burks, the person he believed was forcing him. Now, Burks laments that, quote, from here on out, everything I worked toward would be harder, in some cases impossible, unquote. She goes on to say she would basically have to work behind the scenes against the president having, quote, to adapt to effectively protect the country from the virus that had already silently invaded it, unquote. Which brings us back to the question, Where did Deborah Burks get the nerve, and more mysteriously, the authority, to so blithely act 
in direct opposition to the president she was supposed to serve on matters affecting the lives of the entire population of the United States. Scott Atlas regrets what he thinks was President Trump's massive error in judgment. He argues that Trump acted against his own gut feeling and delegated authority to medical bureaucrats, and then he failed to correct that mistake. That's what Scott Atlas says in his book. Although I believe massive errors in judgment were not unusual for President Trump, I disagree with Scott Atlas on this one. In the case of the Coronavirus Response Task Force, I actually think there was something much more insidious at play. Another shocker for you. Trump had no power over Deborah Burks or pandemic response. Dr. Paul Alexander, an epidemiologist and research methodology expert who was recruited to advise the Trump administration on pandemic policy, tells a shocking story. in an interview with Jeffrey Tucker at brownstone.org, and they they link to it here. The story is shocking because bureaucrats at the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and lawyers from the Justice Department told Dr. Alexander to resign despite direct orders from President Trump and the White House. They reportedly told Alexander, we want you to understand that President Trump has no power. He cannot tell us what to do. Now, Alexander believes these bureaucrats represented the deep state, which he was told repeatedly, had decided first not to hire or pay him, and then to get rid of him. Alexander also writes in an upcoming expose that the entrenched government bureaucracy, particularly at the NIH, CDC, and WHO, used the pandemic response to doom President Trump's chances for re-election. There it is. Was the entire anti-scientific, totalitarian pandemic response all over the world a political maneuver to get rid of Trump? It's possible. I would contend, however, that the politics were only a sideshow to the main event, the engineered virus lab leak and cover-up. I believe the deep state Dr. Alexander repeatedly butted up against was not just the entrenched bureaucracy, but something even deeper and more powerful, which brings us back to deep state front woman, Deborah Burks. After lamenting Trump's delegation of authority to medical bureaucrats, Scott Atlas also hints at forces beyond Trump's control. Dr. Atlas notes The task force was called the White House Coronavirus Task Force, but it was not in sync with President Trump. It was directed by Vice President Mike Pence. Yet whenever 
Scott Atlas tried to raise questions about Deborah Burks's policies. He was directed to speak with Mike Pence, who then failed to ever address anything with Deborah Burks. Here's a quote from Scott Atlas's book. He says, given that the VP was in charge of the task force, shouldn't the bottom line advice emanating from it comport with the policies of the administration? But he would never speak with Dr. Burks at all. In fact, Mark Short, Mike Pence's chief of staff, clearly representing the vice president's interests above all else, would do the opposite, telephoning others in the West Wing, imploring friends of mine to tell me to avoid alienating Dr. Burks. Okay? Now recall that Mike Pence replaced Alex Azar as task force director February 26, 2020, and Deborah Burks's appointment as coordinator at the instigation of Assistant National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger came on February 27th, the next day. Subsequent to those two appointments, it was Deborah Burks who was effectively in charge of United States coronavirus policy. So, what was driving that policy once she took over? Well, as Deborah Burks writes in her book, it was the National Security Council that appointed her through Matthew Pottinger, and it was her job to reinforce their warnings, which I continue to speculate were related to the accidental release of an enhanced pandemic potential pathogen from a U.S.-funded lab in Wuhan, China. Trump was probably made aware of this, as evidenced not just by his repeated mentions, but by what Time Magazine called his uncharacteristic refusal to explain why he believed it. Time Magazine quotes Trump as saying, I can't tell you that, when asked about his belief in the lab leak, and he repeats, I'm not allowed to tell you that. Now, why in the world was the President of the United States not allowed to override an AIDS researcher, diplomat, Deborah Burks, on lockdown policies, nor explain to the public why he believed there was a lab leak? The answer, I believe, is that Trump was uncharacteristically holding back because he was told by Burks, Pottinger, and the military intelligence biosecurity interests for whom they worked that if he did not go along with their policies and proclamations, millions of Americans would die. Why? Because SARS-CoV-2 was not just another zoonotic virus. It was an engineered virus that needed to be contained at all costs. As Dr. Scott Atlas repeatedly notes with great dismay, the task force doctors were fixated on a single-minded view that all cases of COVID must be stopped or millions of Americans would die. That was a key message wielded with great force and success against Donald Trump, his administration, the press, the states, and the public to suppress any opposition to lockdown policies. Yet the message makes no sense if you believe SARS-CoV-2 is a virus 
that jumped from a bat to a person in a wet market, severely affecting most people who are old and debilitated. It only makes sense if you think or know that the virus was engineered to be especially contagious or deadly, even if its behavior in the population at any given moment might not justify the level of alarm. But again, before indulging in more speculation, let's go back to Deborah Burks. Who else did she and her hidden handlers bulldoze? Well, she dictated policy to the entire Trump administration. In his book, Scott Atlas observes, with puzzlement and consternation, that although Mike Pence was a nominal director of the task force, Deborah Burks was the person in charge. Atlas said Burks's policies were enacted throughout the country in almost every single state for the entire pandemic. This cannot be denied. It cannot be deflected. Atlas is dumbstruck at the lack of leadership in the White House, in which the president was saying one thing while the White House task force representative was saying something entirely different, indeed contradictory, and as he notes, no one ever set Deborah Burks straight on her role. Not only that, but no matter how much Trump or anyone in the administration disagreed with Deborah Burks. Scott Atlas tells us the White House was held hostage to the anticipated reaction of Dr. Burks, and she was not to be touched, period. Now, Scott Atlas suggests one explanation for her untouchableness is that Deborah Burks and her policies became so popular with the press and public that the administration did not want to rock the boat by replacing her before the election. This explanation, however, as Scott Atlas himself realizes, crumbles in the face of what we know about Trump and the media's hostility toward him. Atlas says Trump's advisors had convinced him to do exactly the opposite of what he would naturally do in any other circumstance, to disregard his own common sense and allow grossly incorrect policy advice to prevail. This president, widely known for his signature, you're fired, declaration, was misled by his closest political intimates, all for fear of what was inevitable anyway, skewering from an already hostile media. I would suggest again, the reason for the seemingly inexplicable lack of gumption on Trump's part to get rid of Deborah Burks was not politics, but behind-the-scenes machinations of the, to coin a moniker, lab leak cabal. Who else was part of this cabal? with its hidden agendas and oversized policy influence. Our attention naturally turns to the other members of the task force who were presumably co-engineering lockdown policies with Deborah Burks. But surprising revelations emerge, the first of which, there was no troika 
no Burks-Fauci lockdown plan. It was all Burks. You see, it is universally assumed by both those in favor and those opposed to the task force's policy prescriptions that doctors Deborah Burks, Tony Fauci, head of NIAID, and Robert Redfield, then director of the CDC at the time, worked together to formulate those policies. The stories told by Burks herself and task force infiltrator Scott Atlas suggest otherwise. Like everyone else, at the onset of his book, Scott Atlas asserts the architects of the American lockdown strategy were Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks with Dr. Robert Redfield. They were the most influential medical members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. But, as Atlas's story unfolds, he presents a more nuanced understanding of the power dynamics on the task force. Atlas says, Fauci's role surprised me the most. Most of the country, indeed the entire world, assumed that Tony Fauci occupied a directorial role in the Trump administration's task force. I had also thought that from viewing the news. However, Atlas continues, the public presumption of Dr. Fauci's leadership role on the task force itself could not have been more incorrect. Fauci held massive sway with the public, but he was not in charge of anything specific on the task force. He served mainly as a channel for updates on the trials of vaccines and drugs. That's it. By the end of the book, Scott Atlas fully revises his initial assessment, strongly emphasizing that, in fact, it was primarily and predominantly Deborah Burks who designed and disseminated the lockdown policies. Atlas says Dr. Fauci held court in the public eye on a daily basis so frequently that Many misconstrue his role as being in charge. However, it was really Dr. Burks who articulated task force policy. All the advice from the task force to the states came from Dr. Burks. All written communications, all written recommendations about their on-the-ground policies were from Dr. Burks. Dr. Burks conducted almost all the visits to states on behalf of the task force. Now, it may sound jarring and unlikely, given the public perception of Fauci, as Scott Atlas notes, but in Deborah Burks's book, the same unexpected picture emerges. Methinks the lady doth protest too much. As with her bizarrely self-contradictory statements about how she got hired and her blatantly bogus scientific claims in her book, Deborah Burks's story about her mind-melded closeness with Fauci and Redfield falls apart upon closer examination in her book. Deborah Burks repeatedly claims 
She trusts Redfield and Fauci implicitly to help shape America's response to the novel coronavirus. She says she has every confidence based on past performance that whatever path the virus took, the United States and the CDC would be on top of the situation. Then almost immediately, she undermines the credibility of those she supposedly trusts, quoting Matt Pottinger as saying, she should take over Azar, Fauci, and Redfield's jobs because she's such a better leader than they are. Perhaps she was giving herself a little pat on the back, one might innocently suggest, but wait, there's so much more. Burks claims that in a meeting on January 31, 2020, everything doctors Fauci and Redfield said about their approach made sense based on the information available to me at that point, even though neither of them spoke about the two issues she was most obsessed with, asymptomatic silent spread and the role testing should play in the response. Then although she says she didn't read too much into this omission, just two weeks later, as early as February 13th, Burks again mentions a lack of leadership and direction in the CDC and the White House Coronavirus Task Force. So does Debbie trust Tony and Bob's leadership, or does she not? The only answer is more self-contradictory obfuscation. Deborah Burks is horrified that nobody is taking the virus as seriously as she thinks they should. She reports, Then I saw Tony and Bob repeating that the risk to Americans was low. On February 8th, Tony said that the chances of contracting the virus were minuscule. And on February 29th, he said, Right now, at this moment, there's no need to change anything you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Now, this does not seem like the kind of leader that Deborah Burks can trust. She half-heartedly tries to excuse Redfield and Fauci, saying, I now believe that Bob and Tony's words had spoken to the limited data they had access to from the CDC. And then in another whiplash moment, she said, maybe they had data in the United States that I did not. Now, did Tony and Bob provide less dire warnings because they had insufficient data or because they had more data than Deborah Burks did? She never clarifies, but regardless... She assures us that she trusted them and felt reassured every day with them on the task force. Now, if I was worried that the virus was not being taken seriously enough, Deborah Burks's reports on Bob and Tony would not be very reassuring, to say the least. Apparently, Burks herself felt that way, too. She says, I was somewhat disappointed that Bob and Tony weren't seeing the situation as I was when they disagreed with her alarmist assessments of asymptomatic spread. But she adds, at least their number supported my belief that this new disease was far more asymptomatic than the flu. I wouldn't have to push them as far as I needed to push the CDC. Now, as someone who disagrees with your assessment to the point that you need to push them in your direction, also someone you implicitly trust to lead the U.S. through the pandemic, Apparently not so much. 
although she supposedly trusts Redfield and sleeps well at night, knowing he's on the task force, Burks has nothing but disdain and criticism for the CDC, the organization Redfield leads. On aggressive testing, I planned to have Tom Frieden, CDC director under Obama, help bring the CDC along, she says. Like me, the CDC wanted to do everything to stop the virus, but the agency needed to align with us on aggressive testing and silent spread. Which makes one wonder, if she was so closely aligned with CDC director Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, why did Burks need to bring in a former director in a direct challenge to the sitting one to, in her words, bring the CDC along. Who is us, if not Burks, Fauci, and Redfield? Masks were another issue of apparent contention. Burks is frustrated because the CDC, led by her, we've got each other's back, bestie, Robert Redfield, will not issue strict enough masking guidelines. In fact, she repeatedly throws Robert Redfield's organization under the bus, basically accusing them of causing American deaths. She writes, For many weeks and months to come, I fretted over how many lives could have been saved if the CDC had trusted the public to understand that masks would do no harm and could potentially do a great deal of good. Well, again, She couldn't be more wrong. But apparently, Fauci was not on board with the masking either early on, as Deborah Burks says that getting the doctors, including Tom Frieden and Tony Fauci, to be in complete agreement with me about asymptomatic spread was slightly less of a priority. As with masks, I knew I could return to that issue as soon as I got their buy-in on our recommendations. Well, now, who is making our recommendations if not Burks, Fauci, and Redfield? Okay, we come to the myth of the Troika. Whether or not she trusted them, and it's hard to believe based on her own accounts that she did, it was apparently very important to Burks that she, Fauci, and Redfield appear as a single entity with no disagreements whatsoever. When Scott Atlas, an outsider not privy to whatever power plays were happening on the task force, came in, his presence apparently rattled Deborah Burks, and for good reason. Atlas immediately noticed strange goings-on. In his book, he repeatedly uses words like bizarre, odd, and uncanny to describe how Fauci, Redfield, and Burks behaved. Most notably, they never, ever questioned or disagreed with one another in task force meetings. Not ever. Atlas said they shared thought processes and views to an uncanny level. He reiterates that there was virtually no disagreement among them. What he saw was an amazing consistency, as though there was an agreed-upon complicity. 
He said they virtually always agreed, literally never challenging one another. Now wait. And agreed upon complicity? Uncanny agreement? Based on all of the disagreements reported by Burks and her repeated questioning and undermining of Robert Redfield and Tony Fauci's authority, how can this be explained? I would contend that in order to obscure the extent to which Burks alone was in charge of task force policy, the other doctors were compelled to present a facade of complete agreement. Otherwise, as with any opposition to or even discussion of potential harms of lockdown policies, again, we go back to millions of Americans would die. This assessment is strengthened by Scott Atlas's ongoing bafflement and distress at how the task force, and particularly the doctors and scientists who were presumably formulating policy based on data and research, functioned. Here's a quote from Scott Atlas's book. He said, I never saw them act like scientists. Digging into the numbers to verify the very trends that formed the basis of their reactive policy pronouncements. They did not act like researchers, using critical thinking to dissect the published science or differentiate a correlation from a cause. They certainly did not show a physician's clinical perspective. With their single-minded focus, they did not even act like public health experts. Atlas was surprised, indeed stunned, that no one on the task force presented any data to justify lockdowns or to contradict the evidence on lockdown harms that Atlas presented. More specifically, no data or research was ever presented, except by Atlas, to contradict or question anything Deborah Burks said. Atlas observes, until I arrived, no one had challenged anything she said during her six months as the task force coordinator. Atlas cannot explain what he's witnessing. He said that was all part of the puzzle of the task force doctors. There was a lack of scientific rigor in meetings I attended. I never saw them question the data. The striking uniformity of opinion by Burks, Redfield, Fauci, and Brett Giroir, former admiral and task force testing czar, was not anything like what I had seen in my career in academic medicine. So, how can we explain the puzzle of this uncanny apparent complicity by the task force troika? Methinks the intelligence agent also doth protest too much. An interesting hint comes from the string of anecdotes comprising Matthew Lawrence's New Yorker article entitled The Plague Year. Now, Lawrence writes that Matt Pottinger, the National Security Council liaison to Deborah Burks, tried to convince task force members that masking would stop the virus 
dead in its tracks. But his views stirred up surprisingly rigid responses from the public health contingent. Matthew Lawrence at The New Yorker continues to report that in Pottinger's opinion, when Redfield, Fauci, Burks, and Stephen Hahn spoke, it could sound like groupthink, implying that those were the members of the public health contingent who did not agree with Pottinger's masking ideas. But wait! We just noted Deborah Burks's frustration, indeed deep regret, that the CDC, led by Redfield as well as Fauci and even Frieden, did not agree with her ideas on asymptomatic spread and masking. So why does Pottinger imply that she and the public health contingent of the task force were group-thinking this issue against him? I would suggest that the only way to make sense of these contradictions within Deborah Burks's narrative and between her, Atlas, and Pottinger's stories is if we understand the terms align with us and our recommendations to refer not to the perceived Burks, Fauci, Redfield troika, but to the Burks, Pottinger, lab leak cabal that was actually running the show. In fact, Deborah Burks and Matt Pottinger put so much effort into insisting on the solidarity of the Troika, even when it contradicts their own statements, that the question inevitably arises, what do they have to gain from it? The benefit of insisting that Deborah Burks was allied with Fauci, Redfield, and the public health contingent on the task force, I would argue, is that this deflects attention from the Deborah Burks, Matt Pottinger, Cabal, non-public health alliance. So, her authority and policies emanated from a hidden source. Y'all, if y'all understand this is a bombshell, I, I can't help you. Okay? Back to the article. The explanation of Scott Atlas's perceived puzzle of the task force doctors that makes the most sense to me is that Deborah Burks, in contrast and often in opposition to the other doctors on the task force, represented the interests of what I'm calling the lab leak cabal. Those not just in the U.S., but in the international intelligence and biosecurity community who needed to cover up a potentially devastating lab leak and who wanted to impose draconian lockdown measures such as the world had never known. Who exactly they were and why they needed lockdowns are subjects of ongoing investigations. In the meantime, once we separate Deborah Burks from Donald Trump, from the rest of the administration and from the others on the task force, we can see clearly that her single-minded, and scientifically nonsensical emphasis on silent spread and asymptomatic testing was geared toward a single goal, to scare everyone so much that lockdowns would appear to be 
a sensible policy. This is the same strategy that was uncannily, in my opinion, implemented almost to the letter in nearly every other country around the world. But that's for my next article. I'll close this chapter of the Deborah Burke's riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma with Scott Atlas's report of his parting conversation with President Trump. Trump said to Scott Atlas, you were right about everything all along the way, and you know what? You were also right about something else. Fauci wasn't the biggest problem of all of them. It really wasn't him. You were right about that. Scott Atlas says, I found myself nodding as I held the phone in my hand. I knew exactly whom he was talking about. And now, so do we. That is a fascinating article by a woman named Deborah Lerman over the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org, entitled, It Was Burks, All Burks. And you know, that reminds me, two or three months ago, I had an article, a couple of articles, Yeah, mid-July, Michael P. Singer at Substack. One of the articles was entitled, Deborah Burks's Silent Invasion, A Guide to Destroying America from Within. Okay? And... Um, There was also an article about the guy, Matt Pottinger, at the National Security Council, who was behind her getting hired. Again, she had no experience in public health. And epidemiology, nothing like that. She was an AIDS researcher. And Matt Pottinger was behind getting her hired. So I'm going over to check out Michael P. Singer.substack.com. And he's got a new article asking Was Matt Pottinger behind the raid on Trump's residence? Oh, my goodness. Let me just look at this real quickly. It's entitled Matalago. In other words, a play on words from Mar-a-Lago. Matalago was Matt Pottinger behind the raid on Trump's residence. He says, rumors are circulating on the political right that former Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger may have provided the intel for the affidavit warranting the FBI's raid on former President Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago. This has led to a surge in interest in our recent work exploring Pottinger's role as a leading COVID alarmist and lockdown advocate 
in the White House in early 2020. And he links, he links to the articles. Matt Pottinger, the intelligence agent who shut down America. That's one of the articles. Another one, how did Deborah Burks get the job? And another one, Dr. Burks's fake science revealed in her own words. He says, as a simple anti-lockdown, anti-communist Chinese party activist with no strong party allegiance or policy preferences other than not totalitarianism, I'll support whatever leader promises to get the most lockdown conspirator and communist Chinese party collaborator scalps. So I have no particular dog in the Trump fight just reaching for another bag of popcorn while I wait and see where this all goes. It's Michael P. Singer, an attorney and author of Snake Oil, how Xi Jinping shut down the world. Over at Substack. I, uh, I mean... I don't know if anybody else is talking to you about any of this stuff. I don't have time to listen to other shows. I uh, I don't know, man. But what I do know is that I feel an obligation to you. And I always have. Um... It's it's my duty, it's my obligation to share with you what's going on, which is why I'm doing show prep around the clock. This is the third night in a row I've been up all night. I got people saying good morning to me on the uh, on the live stream. Uh, I'm I'm not trying to brag. I'm not looking for a pat on the back. I'm just telling you I'm dedicated to this. And um, I hope I can start learning how to be awake in the daytime and sleep at night. But um, I just stumble across things that I know I've got to share with you. I know I've got to share with you. And, and, so, and so, indeed, that's, that's exactly what I've done. Now, um, I, I certainly believe... It's time to say, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. It believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice. Any way you want to. Online. Or if you're in central Arkansas, you go to the store. But online, anywhere in America, they will deliver that car to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. Today's tweet of the day is from a Twitter profile called Only Jesus Saves Sinners. And it's a quote out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers 
shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Brother, ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Somewhere else in the Bible says, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. See, I, I like to give you a little bit of hope up in here um, because on a regular basis, I'm telling you very alarming and concerning things. So I like to give you a little bit of hope. And so I hope it did that. And thank you again, Mitch Ward and Red River your way dot com for making it possible for us to do what we do by sponsoring the tweet of the day. Okay, you've been listening to episode two thirty of the all new Doc Washburn show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us. And we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, it's simple. Simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is. Friday, September 2nd, 2022.